Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, we are bringing in one of our lawyers to talk about a, a lot of legal stuff, important legal stuff that we wish we had known years ago. So um, stay tuned for that in a second. Before we get started, two announcements, um, two big events coming up, the Your Life, Your Terms event on Saturday, May 12th. If you haven't checked out the details about that yet, you can go to www.yourlifeyourtermsevent.com. So that's www.yourlifeyourtermsevent.com. That is for Rockstar Inner Circle members. We do open some spots. Um, if you're not a member, Rockstar members definitely have priority. We're filling up these seats fast. We're going to cap out on this. So if you want to check that out, do so now. If you're a Rockstar member listening to this and you haven't registered, yet, definitely reach out to the office to lock up your seat. Um, and the next big thing that we have going on is in June, on June 7th and 8th in Oakville, we have the Rockstar Entrepreneur Summit happening. If you haven't checked out details about that yet, um, you can go to rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash summit, which is S-U-M-M-I-T. So rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash summit to check out the Rockstar um, Entrepreneur Summit where we, uh, we cover a whole smash of stuff in two days. So we're starting to get pumped up for that. Um, that takes a lot to put together, but it's genuinely the stuff that we wish we were told when we were starting out. So uh, we have a good time with it, and it's, uh, it's definitely a, great, a bunch of great people come out to it. This is the second time we're doing it. Last year when we did it, a whole bunch of people came out, renewed to come out th this year when we did it again without even knowing the dates or what we're going to talk about or anything. So uh, that really spoke highly to, uh, I think, highly to the value of the content that we were uh, we were sharing there. So with that, let's transition over to this episode. We had a, a great uh, ch chat with Chris Agaropoulos, a uh, great guy. And we just talk about kind of the legal system in Canada and how it works, um, what real estate investors should know about closing on properties. These are all little things that seem now very obvious to us and stuff we've dealt with for years at this point. But when we didn't know these things, we got really scared when anything would potentially go wrong on a property because we didn't understand things like damages and lawsuits and the legal system. So we brought on Chris just to share all that stuff because we feel that once you know how the system works in Ontario, it removes a lot of the fear around the legal process in Ontario. And once you know good people like a, a good Chris Agaropoulos, a good lawyer, um, it puts your mind at ease. So if you haven't made good relationships with your own lawyers yet, you know this is what you want to do. This is part of your team when you're real estate investing, your lawyers, your mortgage brokers, um, your bankers, your property managers, um, your, insurer, your insurers. These, these are the people that are going to get you through any of the twist and turn, turns that eventually come your way in real estate. So it's really important to build out your network. So with that, let's go over and chat with Chris. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. So we're on, we're, your body. We're, we're on. Yeah, we're live. So we were just talking about how Chris looks really well put together in. Is that a three piece suit or a 13 piece suit? Because I have lost count after that. You count the pieces. It's I think it's three and it's all show. It's all show. <laughs> it's all show. when you have a suit with polka dots on the lined with polka dots on the inside. That's when you know you're high end. Thank you, you very much. Do you know much. what I mean? <laughs> I'm sitting here with a Lululemon top on, some jeans on that cost me more than I want to share. 
um, some NMD running shoes, which no one cares to know about. I know. But then you shoes. said you said maybe I'm fit, and that's laughable because I was chasing Nick at the gym around the building, and I was such in last place. I'm the worst runner known to humankind, Chris. And and uh, they were all running like way ahead of me, and I was trying to slow them down, saying, "Hey guys, like wait up! I have something to tell you." None of them <laughs> would wait for me. They're running. James on our team. I've never shared this with you. You know James. Yes. James on our team was running. He's a good runner. He was running. We had to do two laps around the building we're in. I run around. We start at the same time. He goes way ahead of me. He thinks we only have to do one lap. So he goes back into the gym. And then I guess I pass the door, keep running. And I guess someone told him, no, it's two laps. So he comes out running again and he laps me again. So in one little session, he passed me twice. It's like the most embarrassing thing. But I'm, I'm promising I'm working on my fitness. Well, it seems to me that you guys are living the dream. You know, you're in the gym, not in the office. It's yeah. amazing. I don't know if we're living the dream. We're living something. <laughs> now we are fortunate. You guys it's are doing good. well. Yep. It's good. Um, so how did you decide to become, why did you decide? We just started, to, when we talked with Kelly earlier, we said, uh, I don't know if we've ever told you this, Chris, but we generally don't like lawyers. I don't either. But you <laughs> somehow have passed through and somehow we get along great. But uh, in generally, we like lawyer jokes. We like, you know, everything to do with making fun of lawyers. I think maybe it's because we're in real estate and people make fun of real estate people. It's kind of like maybe we're the same breed or something. I like think that. we like lawyers when they're working on our behalf. It's yeah. great. But we've, if, we, if we have to speak with a lawyer that's kind of like against us on the other side, we just we don't, hate don't, them. Don't, yeah. Yeah, 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 generally, yeah. we're not very likable. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but it is good. No, no. To have good lawyers is, uh, yeah, joking aside, it's important to know good lawyers. And, uh, you know, the first time I met you, I was thinking about this. Because you were in a law firm in Hamilton. I had, Someone had rammed me from behind. I remember. Yeah, and I went to see you, and uh, I don't think we could, like, my income hadn't changed or whatever. I don't know the laws in Ontario, so there was nothing really we could do because so many people had said, hey, Tom, I was having post-concussion symptoms for a year. I remember that. It was brutal. And uh, anyway, there was nothing to be done legally. But uh, I remember you were sitting behind a pretty big desk in that suit, and I was like, this guy, this guy probably knows what he's talking about. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you lawyers put on a good show. Again, all show. I didn't have a sweet clue. Whatever I told you was total nonsense. <laughs> you missed out on $10 million. Yeah, yeah Tom, by the way, you could have got $10 million from the insurance companies on that thing. All joking aside, listen, that truck hit me at 70 kilometers an hour. The guy fell asleep at the wheel. It was a big coffee truck, like a dually coffee truck, big double wow. wheeled. I saw the Ford symbol in my rear view mirror um, and I screamed so loud. I actually passed out, um, but I remember when I woke up. So the guy hit me. I hit an 18-wheeler gasoline truck that had big uh, flammable signs on the back of it. Wow. I sideswiped the corner, back corner of it. I went across two lanes. I smashed the car so hard in front of me, in front of two lanes over in front of me. Um, it smashed the car in front of it. I passed out and um, just for maybe what, six, seven seconds, I opened my eyes, somebody was knocking at the window. And the freakiest part about that, once you realize you might never see your family again, like how life can be so precious, yeah. um, was I when I blacked out, I heard my own self scream out of body. Like I heard, it was the weirdest thing, like I heard myself screaming, but I knew I wasn't hearing it from within my body. I know this sounds ridiculous. No, not really. But it, uh, and, and my body was like, um, the way I saw it was just like my mouth wasn't moving, but I heard a scream pitched so high, like like just an animal like scream, like just pure fear, like something I've never heard from me again, like a sheer scream of terror. Hmm. Um, and that rattled me for months, man. That rattled me for really a long time. And then I had post, and then it got worse. 
the doctor I went to go see after a week, Nick said, hey, you have post-concussion. I'm like, yeah, uh, I should go see a doctor. I went to a doctor, maybe it was in a week, couple of days, and the doctor said, you don't have post-concussion. I think you have diabetes. Remember <laughs> I told you this? Uh, I had diabetes. And then he said, uh, you should get a CT scan or something. No, they ran my blood work, decided I didn't have diabetes. I'm like, yeah, no, I have post-concussion. Like, I'm walking into the wall down the hallway. And they said, uh, okay, go for a CT scan now because your blood work's okay. You don't have diabetes. At the CT scan, the technician who took it apparently was covering his own ass and said, you have a lesion in the weird part of your brain. Um, we think you have a brain tumor. Oh, that's scary. And the doctor, when he said this to me, said, all I'm allowed to tell you is you have a brain tumor. You have to see a specialist and it's a week away. <laughs> that is scary. I dro- it was scary. I drove home with tears coming down my eyes thinking, I think my life's over wow. and I'm not going to see my family. I don't know what's happening. I waited a week for this appointment. Um, they couldn't really tell me very much. And uh, luckily I had a friend whose father owns a bunch of MRI clinics in the, in the area. They got me into a hospital in Toronto, took an MRI. He called me personally and said, Tom, there is a lesion in your brain. It's just in an abnormal area, but it's totally fine. Like it's the technician just seeing something he didn't know what he was seeing. Yeah. You're a hundred percent good. But that was like that whole process that I just described took several, a couple months to get through. That mm-hmm. was, uh, that was horrible. That was really, really horrible. Anyway. Well, that's Chris. Depressing. Thanks for being here. I don't know why we started on that depressing. Th- no, anyway, I'm depressing. living now. <laughs> I'm living and I'm a slow runner. By the way, I'm looking at your brother. He's killing himself laughing over here. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. 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 Now yeah, I'm laughing. Yeah. No, yeah, I was, yeah. I mean, at the time it, it was, it was bad. Out, yeah. Yeah, I just kept telling him how stupid the doctors were with the diabetes. I'm like, the doctor's stupid. You're not diabetic. He's an idiot. It's post-concussion. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know yeah. why I was so convinced that I knew. Well, we all kind of knew I didn't have diabetes. Like, I just had this car accident yeah. and stuff. But for anyone going through, I think concussions are, are better accepted now in the last few years. This was like seven, eight years ago. Yeah. I couldn't find anyone to help me. It was like new science. Like, the whole post-concussion well, thing was new science. It's, it's, that a bit of, it's a bit of black magic. And I how think. do you it's prove still, it? It still is a bit of black magic, I think. But anyway, I mean... You know, until they diagnose something, then they're not certain what you have. You and know? how do they diagnose it? Because all I'm feeling is like walking down the hallway. I'm, I'm unsteady. I couldn't concentrate for long periods of time. But like, how do you put data associated with that? I would need to know how I behaved before the accident. Right. And like, how do you quantify yeah. any of that? No, it is really scary for sure. Scar- Luckily, we were in a position, talk about living life on your terms, that my financial situation for my family did not go down. In fact, during that period, our financial situation got better. Well, which was part increased. of the problem with, with when it came to like an injury claim. Um, that was part of the challenge, right? And because, Chris was asking me, is your income going down? I'm like, no, it's actually going up. <laughs> like, oh, damn. Okay, I can't really do anything then. So, yeah. so that, but you know what? I guess that can lead into the, this type of thing because, and we were talking about this earlier um, before, a lot of people when they, they think about like, you, you know, lawsuits and things like that, they think it's like, or, or contract law, they think it's, you know, because something's said in a contract that, you know, things have to happen in a certain way. And you clarified that often when it comes to contract stuff, whether it's real estate or elsewhere, it all always reverts back to damages. If there's no damages and you like, there's no kind of like, you have to be able to prove not just that someone offended you. I mean, maybe in like extreme cases, like I guess that's defamation or something, but there's got to be like, like tangible something something that you've lost right yeah like in almost every case there has to be a calculation as to you know what damage the aggrieved party has suffered you know uh and even though there might be let's call it a wrong for lack of a better word some sort of wrong and let's just say that you know after a trial a judge finds that there's been some sort of wrong committed either contractually or negligently uh, there still has to be some quantification of the damages 
Um, and at the end of the day, most court cases are about damages or about money. Um, you know, sometimes judges make declarations and say certain things about, you know, the conduct of a party. But the end result ultimately has to be, you know, what's what's the quantification of that? What's that worth? You know, um, you know, if a judge declares at the end of a trial that let's just say the defendant's a very bad person, where does that get you? It doesn't get you anything. You need the quantification of damages and, you know, some money coming back into your pocket. So um, so it's kind of a two, to make it basic, there has to be two elements. There has to be, let's call it the wrong, again, for lack of a better word. And, you know, what's the damage or the quantification of money that flows from that wrong? I think understanding that helped us feel more comfortable with the law in Canada and in Ontario because I think we always operated under the idea that someone's going to serve you with a lawsuit and you could be in trouble for yeah. any reason. Yeah. But, but really it comes down to, and I tell damages, and I tell people that on the flip side, like you can't just sue somebody. Like you can, but unless you have these provable damages, really what are you going to get in this whole process? And they have to be worth it in terms of, you know, what you're paying a lawyer, what the court costs are, you know, um, you know, on the real estate deals that we do sometimes, guys, you know, that maybe someone will be slightly offside in terms of, again, using the word a wrong. Um, but as a lawyer, they'll ask me, like, what do you think? And I say, well, you might be offside a little bit, but is that, re is that guy really going to chase you over a couple thousand bucks? Maybe, maybe, or probably not. So, you know, a lot of it comes down to what is that um, plaintiff, what is that person who says something wrong has been committed, willing to do to chase you over what amount of money? Uh, and if there's a lot of money at stake and he has a reasonably good case and he's willing to pay a lawyer, then he might chase you. If there's not a lot of money at stake um, and he's not willing to pay a lawyer, then, you know, you might sort of feel a little bit more comfortable about the situation I've leaving aside whether you're wrong or not contractually yeah got it what if i what if just for fun so tom pisses me off one day and i'm like you know what to get back which happens him, often yeah, I'm, sure. yeah. I'm just gonna file a lot <laughs> like i just like just for my own enjoyment i'm gonna have a, and a good youtube video a good rockstar minute I'm gonna have gonna someone serve, serve papers? him papers. So I want to. I'm gonna sue Tom They're for no basis. But that I'll just has make really no up. effect on me anymore. Getting served with papers. I don't know. It so, doesn't really bother me at all. That's good. But <laughs> that's good. You're getting tougher. Amazing. So if that happened, what am I? I'm just curious. Like, what if if you just do something like out of the blue because I'm like, ah, I'm gonna sue him for five thousand bucks because he ripped me off and really he didn't. I mean, he he can must be able to counter sue me for just wasting his time, right? Um, so it, that's a costs issue. So, um, he can't counter sue you or counterclaim against you unless he has a claim against you for some, at law we say, independent actionable wrong. Um, but he does have a claim for his costs. Okay. Um, and that's where jurisdictions come into it. So anything currently in Ontario under $25,000 or rather up to $25,000 is in small claims court. And um, there are rules about how much money you can get in costs in small claims court. And above that, you go to the Superior Court of Justice. So using your scenario, you've sued Tom for $5,000 in small claims court. Um, and it's, you know, total BS claim. Um, and Tom can then make a claim for his costs as a result of that. If he had to hire a lawyer or paralegal, there's some cost to that. If he had that's to do it that's, himself. That's horrible. So nothing for my time or hassle. No. That seems like that's the, that seems no. like an awesome practical joke to play on someone. No, it's true. I'm already thinking yeah, about a list true. of people's names that I'm going to go file lawsuits against. It's, tr it's true. 
yeah. your cost. Now, your cost can be substantial, right? In the Superior Court of Justice, they can go up significantly higher. But in small claims court, they're, you know, in the couple thousand dollars. And what's usually. the threshold of small claims these days? It's always changing. 25,000. It's 25,000. Yep. It used to be 10 not too long ago. Was yeah, it 10? Yeah, it was 10. And before that, uh, when I got called to the bar, I think it was six or four, I forget. So it's gone up a little bit. I always feel can like you when expl- you're called to the yeah. bar, yep. that seems like such like a... I, you know, like the, the heavens part and the trumpets kind of play. You gotta explain. You gotta explain that. Where's yeah, that yeah, terminology yeah, yeah, come yeah, from? Yeah. You gotta help I, me out with that. I, 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 you know what? Um, I can't. Like, are you I getting called to the bar to do shots? Uh, that'd be a great. Tequila at yeah. the bar. I can't. I can't with specificity trace it back, but I think it's being called to the English bar as a barrister, sort of counsel at the bar. And so being called so that you can, you know, appear before a judge and make submissions. And, do and all the this difference stuff, between right? a barrister and a lawyer is. Uh, so in England, I think they still have the distinction. I believe they do. Barrister and solicitor. And, OK. So a barrister is a, a higher something. No, no a litigation guy. So think okay. of it more like a litigation guy. And a solicitor is more of a corporate real estate kind of guy. And in England, they have distinctions so that the the solicitors will usually meet with the clients, set up the claim, and oh, then the, and the, barrister. the barrister will go and argue it in front of a judge. Yeah, I uh, remember somebody I used to report to in my software sales day. I think he was a barrister. He was a barrister. He let everybody yes. know he was a barrister. I'm a barrister. I'm a barrister. Yeah. So okay, so you were like called to the bar. Like Nick, dick. we weren't called to anywhere. <laughs> yeah, we weren't called to anywhere. Uh, when we got our real estate license, we weren't called to anything. No, I was. We used to pay money. I, I was lifted to. Um, I don't know. I was trying to think of, of some sort of. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to real trump estate. it. I, I think actually you lower down your status in society when you get your real estate license. Well, look, that's I listen, a talk for another. I day. had to. Yeah. I had to write three open book exams. So I don't know what you yeah, went yeah. to school for, but you know, for yeah, my yeah, license, yeah. it was yeah. very. Actually, involved, I remember right? the law exam for real estate, and at that time, it was still open book, and. Uh, I could find information pretty quickly in textbooks and I didn't have time to study for this thing. And I walked in completely blind, just re- looked at the questions, went through the textbook and wrote out the answers. I think it was two or three hours. I just hours. wrote out like full, full trying to for part marks, yeah, like yeah, full paragraphs into the thing. <laughs> so who knows, Chris, we might be lawyers as well. Well, the it, bar I'm, might be I'm, calling I'm, us. I'm sure you could be. Yeah. I'm sure yeah, you could the be. The bar is Nick. We're, we're next on the, on the <laughs> list, but we didn't ask you what always the dream to become a lawyer. Um, I don't know that it was always the dream, but, um, you know, you finish school, so you finish university, you do your, I think it was four years back then. And so then you're kind of playing around with, well, do I do my master's, you know, or do I, yeah, do yeah, I yeah. go on to some postgraduate type thing? And so I would say from early university years, it was sort of in my brain to, to go to law school, maybe even like end of high school. Um, Greek, but, Greek parents. Both your parents are Greek. Oh yeah, they were proud. Uh, maybe. Oh yeah, I, they were proud. I, I never heard that they were, to, but yes. I'm certain. Yeah. Oh well, no, <laughs> because they never told you that. That's the European way. They're not going to tell you that that's they're right. proud. But that's behind right. their back, your back, yeah, they're very right. proud. Yeah, yeah, but I was very practical about it as well because you know, so you sort of looked at it, or at least I looked at it and thought, well, what you know, classes am I good in? What classes do I have more difficulty with? And um, so I thought, can I do science and math and stuff? Not really. I mean, I could kind of muddle my way through it, but so there goes med school. Um, but, you know, I could always do pretty decent in like the reading and the writing and stuff. So kind of gravitated yeah, towards law out. school a little bit. And know? then when you finished law school, was it right? Was there a certain type of practice you wanted to do? Um, I always did want to do litigation. Um, I always liked that the best and truthfully, I still like it the best. It's way more interesting. Cause there's interesting. a little bit of adrenaline too. Yeah, I, it's I more imagine. interesting. Like you're dealing with, you know, personalities and running into all types of people all the time. 
Um, so I, I think I wanted to do that the, the most. And just out of coincidence and luck, when I call it articling, like an apprenticeship, um, what they said, you know, um, we have one job that's open and it's uh, as a litigation, you know, junior. Do you want it? And I said, yes, please. And uh, that's how it started, you know? Yeah, because I'm sure a whole bunch of people don't want litigation and go into True. a courtroom and For stuff sure. intimidating. For sure. And, uh, it takes with, a personality and, type. Yeah, it's and, more work, probably. you got to research that. Like, like, compared to if you're, I'd imagine it's more work and you're compensated for it, but then if you're, you know, if you closing real estate deals on a regular basis, the litigation is obviously there's more research and there's more whatever the terms are you would use. Yeah, there's prepare. more there's more personal investment in it. You're right. You have to like sort of be prepared for court the next day and kind of have to review your file and all those things. But it, it really is personality driven. You know, I've always said that, you know, just because you're a lawyer doesn't mean that you're smarter than anyone else. I don't I really don't believe that's true. You know, I often tell my wife, I think she's twice as smart as I am. Um, I don't think that, that the intelligence level has to be that high because we're not really discussing really complicated topics. If you think about it, right, like we're not splitting the atom. We're uh, talking about, you know, is there some sort of wrong and who committed the wrong and what do I get paid for the wrong? Like, it's not real complicated. But you have to know the law to be able to, sure. because your arguments have to be based around these things that a lot of people don't understand that you do, for right? For sure, for sure. But you can learn that. It's not it's not that complicated. I think that personality is a, is a fundamental component of good lawyering. You have to have the personality for it. I do think you watch you, the show Suits? I've seen bits and pieces of Suits. That makes being a lawyer look really cool. It really does. That makes everybody. I'd I'd like to work in that office. Oh yeah, but they don't spend much time in the courtroom. They're just drinking, looks like, and because they settle. Fun. They yeah they, yeah yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, okay. And then, so the damages stuff. I think in the real estate world, uh, this happens all the time where people get completely confused. So let's just map it out. Someone thinks that on a real estate deal, they're going to buy a property. A deposit goes down to buy the property. Okay. I'm going to go buy this property. I'm going to put down a $25,000 deposit on the property okay. or 2000 or 5000 whatever. $25,000 deposit. I go firm on my agreement and I'm like, Chris, I don't want to close on that property. Get me my $25,000 back. I don't want to or I can't. Or uh, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Right. For whatever reason, I yeah. you know, got cold feet, I'm not going to close. What most people don't seem to understand is that $25,000 is in a brokerage's trust account. Yes, most the, in most cases. In yes. most cases. Sometimes it could be in a lawyer's trust account or whatever. Um, the brokerage can't release those funds magically back. We have to wait on direction from someone like yourself. It's true. Um, and in that case, even if the, the, I felt I was wrong, you know, like the people, whatever, something happened on this uh, real estate deal, um, and I deserve my money back. I now actually have to go through, go through a court process to try and get that money back. And during that process, if the sellers feel like they're losing money or can prove damages yeah. to your earlier point, because yeah. maybe the markets now change. I bought a property for 500,000. Now the markets change and it's only worth 450. Yep. And they sell it for four fifty. They have provable damages yes. now. Yes. Yes. If the market went up from five hundred to five fifty, and they made more money, hard to come after me. Hundred percent. Um, but if the market went up and they sold it for higher, would I likely get my deposit back because they have no damages? So let's, let's assume in a pretty pristine case, they have no other costs or anything like that. Yeah. So so you just hit the nail on the head. So. So in that particular case, again, to use some lawyer words, we would talk about heads of damages. You know, so what type of damages are we talking about? We're talking about 
uh, in your scenario, we're talking about the damages attributable to the the loss of income, right? So they were selling for five hundred. I think you said four hundred fifty thousand. Now they've sold for five hundred thousand, so they've made fifty thousand dollars. So no loss there. In fact, they've made some money. The second head of damages, in theory, would be, you know, maybe the real estate brokers bang them out for some extra money now as a result of another commission. Um, maybe carrying two mortgages exactly. for a period of time. Carrying two mortgages, uh, you know, more property taxes. Maybe they had to reshuffle and move and move into a hotel or who knows what. So they right? have other provable stuff. In theory, they have to prove it. Um, so that would be another head of damage. But again, you know, in your scenario, there's a, there's a $50,000 surplus. So all of that would be subtracted from that $50,000 surpru- uh, surplus. So, yeah, they have to prove their damage, you know, um, but that you're right, quite right. That deposit sits in the brokerage until either there's a mutual release. You know, you guys agree to a mutual release or there's some sort of direction from the lawyers or from the court. And then if it was the reverse and there was money lost, yes. they have provable damages because they sold for $50,000 less. Yes. I might be on the hook for that 50000 in which case I'm not seeing any of my $25,000 deposit back. That's right. Because they have provable damage of 50000 and I might be owing them more money. Yeah. Which so- has happened recently. Uh, we know some people... Um, the guy who cuts my hair in Mississauga has some uh, a friend that uh, in Mississauga just off... Um, somewhere on the west side of Mississauga, sold their house at the peak last year. Um, the people didn't close. Mm-hmm. Now, property, his property, they think they would sell it for $150,000 less. Yeah. Puts them in a massive jam because they were yeah. making on more money. Yeah. And they can't, uh, I think it was a foreign buyer. Like they were buying here, but they don't really have an address here that's yeah. really easy to be. And so now they're in this jam where they have kind of damages, but they can't really get any recourse on that money. Um, but that happens in real estate all the time on ups sure. and downs in markets. For sure. And, you know, like last summer, um, we had more than a few cases like that where people couldn't close, mostly because they'd received soft pre-approvals. And, you know, so they thought that they, they were had, done they, and they, could they get thought a they could get the financing. And then at the last minute that, that their, you know, mortgage financing didn't come through. So we had more than a few last summer um, you know, scrambles at the last minute where clients were saying, look, I can't close. I didn't get the financing. Um, so, you know, it was an interesting summer. Yeah. And I think that's the, the thing that people have to keep in mind, just that you're thinking about damages, right? So if you buy a property, don't close on it and the market's going up and the sellers are going to sell for more, maybe you get out of it pretty easily. And we've seen cases like that actually. For sure. Um, but on the flip side, if there's provable damages, you could be in the jam and being on the hook legally for those damages. Provable, uh, definitely damages subject to the seller mitigating his damages or her damages. So you're selling, um, our client backs out or can't close for whatever reason at 500,000. So seller turns around and sells for $450,000. Assuming you take them to task and there's a whole adjudication in front of a judge, you know, you might argue, you know, did he, did he do a quick sale? Did he sell at 450 at, at a price that was really well okay, below so the you market could argue value? It. Yeah, got it. You know, was he looking to get out of there as quickly as he could? You know, could he have sold for more if he held out? All that's subject to argument. But as a premise, what you're saying, Tom, is exactly right. And I think that's yeah. what, Nick, most people don't understand that. I think that's clear just to know in real estate. That's yeah, totally. what you're dealing with. You can't just magically walk away from a property once you have a firm agreement in place. Yeah, the other thing that a lot of people don't understand, any investor that's bought a property, and we get asked this all the time, they're like, well, look, I put a clause in there to protect myself, inspection, financing, whatever. Right. It says in the clause that, you know, provided I don't get suitable financing in my own discretion, 
that this uh, by this certain date, yeah, essentially, if I don't fulfill this condition or waive it, this contract is null and void. But still, we need a mutual release, which right. freaks everyone out all the time. It freaks me out too because I'm like, what? What? You know? So just it, describe a mutual release. Or yeah, the mutual release is just basically a contract saying no one's going to sue each other. We all agree to walk away from this deal and return the the funds or something. Is that that's yes. right? Something like yep, that, right? I think that's fair. Yeah. So they need this mutual release, but. In the agreement, it already says that, look, if the inspection doesn't go well or I don't get the financing, th by this date, you know, I don't say that this has gone well, it, this agreement becomes null, null and void. void. And yeah. I'm like, why? It why seems do we need like the mutual, that mutual right? lease has always bothered Nick and I, and we own a brokerage. So I know it's basically just making it very clear to everybody. Certainty. Really? Certainty. Because, because the agreement of purchase and sale that has that clause um, uh, says what it says. You're quite right. But um, in theory as a possibility there could still be a litigation that flows from that there could be some argument as to you know did you really not get the financing what did did you really try to get the financing um what really happened with that no, home inspection okay. it's all subject that's, to some that's debate. where the crazy a bunch of lawyers stuff. arguing yeah, about stuff like, right but the sorry the mutual release gives you the certainty you know once that's been signed then it's basically because all parties right? are yeah. agreeing that we're all walking yes. away from this and yeah. no one's suing yeah. anyone and yeah. the brokerage is clear yeah. and you're yeah. clear and by the way that's the kind of stuff that makes people crazy about the law exactly that type of thing yeah. is what makes people totally. nuts right? so then what about in a situation where um so like I, I've now looked to buy a house. So I'm an investor, I bought a property, realized that I don't want this property anymore. I've signed the mutual lease and sent it over to the seller saying, hey, look, I'm I'm happy to walk away from this. I don't have any claims towards you. Yes. And I think that we're going to walk away. He decides not to sell it and he's he's suing me because first he feels like I'm walking away in bad faith. So he's suing me. Yeah. I've now signed this uh, this mutual release and sent it to him. Can he now like use it against you? Yeah, can he use that against me? Not really. No, okay. Not really. I mean, you know, his lawyer might make some sort of argument in front of a judge that you know by signing the mutual release you've admitted some sort of guilt in it, but um, and guilt's not the proper word. Admitted some sort of liability in it, but not really. The the execution of the mutual release in and of itself is not going to sink okay. you because someone has to sign it first in all circumstances, That's right? right? So right. you're it can, just it can be seen as an indication, you know. And you know, at trial, then you know maybe a lawyer will take you to task on that and ask you why did you sign it? What was your motivation? But in and of itself, you know, the judge isn't going to see that you signed it and go, okay, done. You know, there's yeah, okay. still there's still going to be an argument about it. You know, yeah, so it's an, always uh, an argument. It's always it's always an there's, argument. There's different circumstances and positions right. where there, there's never a, and that's why. And I mean, I joke about. I mean, it, you guys like lawyers and accountants that you're never going to get an answer. It's always like, well, you know, <laughs> you're just but jealous. You were not called to the bar, Nick. It's true. Yeah. Right. Listen, yeah, right. that. But yeah. they don't get to wear a little. Fa I don't want an engineer, so I don't get to wear one either. But you know, engineers have little fancy rings. Lawyers know, right. should really have. Lawyers yeah. probably have lawyers like, have the suits man yeah that's true all right lawyers have the suits yeah. chris i want to uh, this whole signing under seal thing freaks me out a little bit i want to <laughs> tell you on real estate paperwork yeah you always there's this like sign here and then witness yes but there's this constant argument about yeah. and not from lawyers but just from everyone i deal with it's like says well i don't have to wit i don't have to have my signature witnessed because there's this little star like a little seal like a tiny 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 little seal and they're like, well, I'm signing under seal, so I don't have to witness, have my signature witnessed. And I'm always fine with it. I'm like, okay, whatever floats your boat. Like, yeah. I actually don't care. Yeah. Um, but they make a big deal of it. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. This is uh, just like people that are like signing like, like what, like clients? Like an stuff? agreement of purchase and sale, oh, you wow. know, okay. and they're, they're signing it, but it says to witness, have it witnessed. 
Um, but where they're signing, it has, you know, the little yeah, yeah. seal, yeah, like yeah. It's, it's like half yeah, yeah. a centimeter. Yeah, yeah. It's tiny. Like it looks yeah. like a little blob, but it looks kind of like a star a yeah. little bit. And, and they will make a point to tell me they're signing under seal. So <laughs> that means they don't have to have it witnessed or, and I'm, I just Nonsense. go, I just go with it. Do you, do you always have to have your signature witnessed on a agree, like real estate agreement in person sale paperwork? Or is that just, you don't. And this seal thing is something completely different. Well, look, I mean, it sort of goes to what Nick and I were talking about before we sat down here. Uh, in theory, if everyone's sort of getting along and agreeing and, you know, wants to complete the deal, you could have an agreement of purchase and sale that isn't witnessed at all. Um, you know, everyone signed, the money exchanged, you close the deal, all And it's good. a valid agreement. Yeah, sure, because the conduct of the parties is such okay. that So the it deal only comes closed, up if right? there's an argument. Witness, the witness is there so that someone can attest to the fact that they saw you actually sign it, it was you. I, I met Tom or I know Tom. I so saw you're covering him your bases. That's his signature, right? Yeah. That's the idea behind the witness. And it should be witnessed. Don't get me wrong. These yeah, should yeah, be yeah, witnessed. Yeah. But, in, but, but you know, if Nick and I did a deal, like for the sale of my home tomorrow, and let's just say it wasn't witnessed, as long as Nick and I are on the same page and we all want it and we make it work, then it's not going to get reversed five years from now because we didn't witness it. But how does that impact it now with so many electronic signatures? Because very rarely are things getting witnessed now because there's this audit trail. Does that how does that apply impact things in 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 court if something kind of goes sideways? So it depends on what type of document we're talking about. If it's uh, if it's a declaration or an affidavit of some sort that requires a, you know an actual commissioner's signature or a notary, whatever the case may be. Uh, if it doesn't have that, then it's no good. It's it's void. Um, again, subject to the parties arguing about whether sure, they have a deal you. or not. But, um, you know, on your OREA forms where people are executing and signing now and they're generating electronic signatures, it works um, because it's an indication, it's an indicia that the person has put their mind to it and, you know, I'm doing, have the, the, I'm doing the quotation to, marks here, yeah, but yeah. sign the document. So what about on a lease with a tenant? Then I'd imagine that same thing applies. Like if you, so if I have a lease and I'm, you know, an extension, and I don't want to drive to, I don't know, you know, I live in Oakville and I don't want to drive to Sarnia to get it signed and I email it over to them through one of those electronic document signature uh, software platforms. If they sign that, is that okay? I would advise against it in that situation. Um, it's again, you know, you say, is it okay? It could be okay. If there's I, no problem. I know, I know no, I got, I got your answer right now, but it could be okay. But in that scenario, if you're dealing with tenants and stuff and just because I see so many of these things go crazy, I, I would get, okay, so I would get, you know what, we're just basically that. dealing with different levels of certainty. Yes. If you have it printed right. out on pen and you have it witnessed in pen and dated, then that's like your 10 out of 10 certainty. That's yeah, a valid document. No, no one can argue that. No one can argue about the fact that the guy signed it. It was witnessed, or I mean, if he does argue it, he's an idiot, right? But in your scenario with the electronic signature with a tenant, you know, someone's going to be saying possibly at a landlord-tenant tribunal, yeah. I didn't sign. Someone that. got into my email, yeah, yeah. Exactly. signed that whole thing. Exactly. It wasn't so, me. I always look at things as like the, the chicken wire fence, the wood fence, and the stone wall. Yeah, yeah. You want to be in a situation like that when you're dealing with tenants. I mean, we see our clients all the time having trouble with, you know, not all the time, but sometimes having trouble with tenants. I I wouldn't give them that 
ability to wriggle out, you know? Yeah, got it. Okay. And the whole signing under seal thing, what's, what's that about? So it goes back to the old days when you actually had to put a red seal yeah. or a gold yeah. seal and had the seal stamped or before that, even then it had to be like wax sealed. It was so that means it was really a message from the king. It if it had the seal on it, I knew it was coming from the king. For Not from the king, but for lack of a better word, it was, it was attested to in some manner, but, and that's carried over. Like some parts of the law are sort of evolutionary and they sort of evolve over time and you know maybe years from now we won't see seals at all but you know it's sort of kind of you okay. know halfway through the process i'd say okay and yeah. then i i don't i think this is going to be a gray answer as well but sometimes documents get firmed up um someone says okay you know sign this document and it has an irrevocable date of friday at midnight yeah well the people don't sign till saturday at 6 a.m yeah and they sign it and they put Saturday at 6 a.m. Yeah. But the irrevocable date on the agreement in this real estate thing said it's irrevocable until Friday at midnight. Yep. I'll answer. Yeah. Now I know the answer now. Now after this, it's going to depend. Yeah. Because if I want See? to, yeah. if we want to still, if it's, I'm buying your Nick, house and that happens. You are being called See, to you the bar. You didn't even go to law school. You right? got it, man. Right. <laughs> but if I want to get out of the deal now, that's then right. now I have terms to be able to go and try to get out yeah. of the deal. You, you, that's exactly right. Is you, that, is you that hit the nail on the head. But will it, what are my chances of getting out of the deal? Look, if, if it's irrevocable by a certain time and the guy didn't sign it back within that time and you did nothing to show him that, you know, in some way you've acknowledged that or accepted it, you know, you've, you haven't by your conduct in some way, like you didn't sort of sneak text him and go cool dude or, you know, thumbs up or something. You just didn't give him any indication. Then you could basically tell him you're out of luck. See ya. Are you telling me emojis hold up in court? If I send someone the thumbs up, yeah. that that can help my case. They don't hold up in court, but they could be an indication of intent. This is but, awesome. You know, there's a there's the finger you can uh, text people now too. Yeah, so you got lots of different intent. Yeah. What yeah, happens uh, when the the, the 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 poo emoji? Oh, I don't know. Uh, our, do fam our family uses that. The, the, that's the 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 pile of shit with the two eyes on it. Yeah. Oh, we use that. What do you get? Where how's that one? That's a common. That's when I go to court. Next time I go to court, I'm husband and wife or <laughs> all manner, kids. kids, everything, <laughs> everything. That's that's just common communication in our house. We love ourselves, oh, our family. Man. We all there's love between the family, but we use that in different levels of communication. All right, I'm gonna let you know when I bring it up in court how it goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, what, what's the? Uh, oh, go ahead. Nick. I was going to change the course a little bit, so yeah. I don't know if, if this, if you wanted to go somewhere else, um, because something we get asked a lot about is is corporations, right? Investing in corporations, and we'll yeah. leave. I mean, I know there's uh, there's so many factors here, and there's the accounting factor, and there's mortgages, and there's all this stuff. But just from a, a simple liability factor, um, we'll remove costs and all this other stuff out of it. Yeah. It, I guess there's a benefit. Uh, you know, if you're if you're investing a single in a single family home that you're renting out to one family, does it make sense? You know, in your experience from a liability standpoint, versus you know a, a 15 unit apartment building. I mean, obviously the answer is you know the, the yeah. increased so, liability. Yeah. So so you know as your risk goes up, you know with like you know a student rental is going to be higher risk than a in a, you know a, a, family. a family RTO. You know with good family. Uh, if you've got like a multi-unit, 15-unit, you know, um, maybe in a sort of worse area of town, it's going to be maybe theoretically higher risk than somewhere else. So, you know, if you've got higher risk, uh, corporations are a great idea. Um, you know, remember, of course, that you've got your insurance as well. So your insurance is always your first line of defense. And, you know, you've got to have your policy limits up nice and high. And your insurance people talk to you about that. Uh, but, you know, um, registering 
the property in the name of the corporation certainly helps from a liability point of view because it, what it does is it shields your personal assets. You know, the corporation itself may be liable to a claim, but your personal assets, your RSPs, your cars, your matrimonial home, all those types of things will be protected. So definitely a good idea. Uh, and as risk goes up, a very good idea. Um, I and some other uh, people here at Rockstar have done some, you know, seminars for people, and people do ask us that. They say if it's like a, you know, single-family home, good family, do I need to incorporate? And probably not. Uh, if you want it to be really safe, you should. But it's it's all subject to risk. You know, you could be doing RTOs or rentals for 30 years and never have a claim, uh, and, you know, come back to me after 30 years and say, well, why did I incorporate? I didn't need to do that. Leaving aside, you know, tax benefits sure. and all those things just from a liability point of view but it's helpful obviously do you, you know? have so so two follow-up questions on that do you have a rule of thumb i don't know if this might be more of an accounting question but for um how many properties if you did have a corporation and how many properties or the value of those properties you would put in that corporation my understanding is it depends on how much exposure you want you know so if you have five properties with a million dollars worth of equity and you're comfortable leaving that exposed in that corporation, that's one thing. Or if you have 10 properties with $15 million of liability, you may want to split that up into multiple corporations to limit it. Exactly. And and I've heard some of the accountants talk about that for sure. And I, different accountants have different ideas, but they'll, they'll talk about how many properties per corp. Uh, and I think you're exactly right, Nick. It's just, you know, how much equity have you built up in those properties and how much what's your comfort do you want to leave exposed? What, what's your level of comfort? Because bear in mind too, I mean, if the corp has... $500,000 worth of equity, then that $500,000 is open to being exposed mm -hmm. to a lawsuit. Um, but at least it's not your personal assets. But And with that, though, isn't isn't there in extreme cases, can't they actually break? I, I mean, I think you've used this term, like break the corporate seal. Uh, 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 and it's not break the seal like as in a drinking yeah, term. It was yeah, like yeah, the yeah, corporate yeah. seal. Um, so. uh, lift the corporate veil. Oh, lift the, the corporate, corporate veil. veil or, <laughs> okay, I butchered that one. Euphemistically. Apparently you know, I'm not going to the bar. No, you're still no, called to the bar. You're, yeah, good. Still you're, good. Bar. you're good. You're good. You're good. Uh, yeah, so can't you, like if you're yes. doing, but you have to be doing kind of stupid things, I think, right? Yeah. Gross negligence yeah so so the presumption from the beginning was always you know a corp was a corp was a corp and so if you know if uh, if the corporation owned the property then there was no way a plaintiff could get to the individual that was behind that corp it just didn't happen um, you know over the course of many many years and in, in the English common law and the American jurisprudence here in Canada the, the law has evolved, you know, uh, and there are situations now where judges will look past the corporation and look to the individual themselves. And there has to be certain types of conduct, you know, um, that, that indicates that this person, you know, in effect is running the corporation as a sham. Um, and there's some legislation as well. Like, I mean, there's, you know, um, if you're a director of a corp, then you still have environmental liabilities uh, if you have a corp where you have employees, you still have source deduction liabilities, you know, leaving aside the corp. Um, so the law has evolved to some degree to get at individuals that are using the corporation as a, the law has used the word a sham. Um, but, but overwhelmingly, um, a corp is a corp, you know, and if you're, unless you're doing something real stupid, your corporation is going to protect your personal assets. Okay, and then what about if um, you do hold them personally, don't use a corp, especially if you're beginning? Yes. Um, what, how, how much liability insurance do you have? I, I feel like, I don't know if it was you or someone told us $2 million uh, instead of $1 million is a really good threshold because, and you, 
I don't want to bring up negative situations, but you know, God forbid something horrible happens in the property. $2 million seems to cover almost everything that could happen. Yeah. I did a seminar on that a few, maybe did a you? year ago or something with you guys. Okay. But, but I, I did say that. Like, so I, I would say. And do you still, is that still a rock? I, I would say as a bare minimum, you should be sitting at $2 million, you know. Oh, as a bare minimum now, you think? Well, I'm not sure $1 million is offered anymore. Well, I think standard yeah, policies yeah. are most are $2 million. Yeah, yeah, I think okay. that's right, Nick. Exactly. I'm an old guy. And One million used to be the case. It used to be, yeah. Jeez. So using your scenario, Nick, um, with the car accident that you were telling us about. Tom. Right? Oh, sorry, Tom. No, I don't um, want to put Nick into the car accident. <laughs> that was awful. So um, th- in that particular case, there were basically two heads of damages. There was the damage for the pain and suffering or the injury that you suffered. And there were damages in theory for your loss of income, which you told me was going up rather than yep. going down. So uh, let's just say theoretically you own a home at 123 Main Street. Some guy's walking by and has a slip and fall on your driveway um, and has some serious damages. The court will give him, um, subject to him proving his damages, all that jazz, and subject to liability proving that you're liable for it, uh, X number of dollars for his pain and suffering or the broken bones, let's call it, right? Um, but the court will also give him loss of income damages. So you can imagine a situation if the guy was, let's say, 20, 25 years old, 26 years old, was doing a job that um, um, you know earned him a lot of money. A surgeon? Uh, well, let's say, let's just say even $100,000 a year. Let's just say he was making $100,000 a year, young guy, 25 years old, and let's say that his fall is so bad that he just can't work at that job anymore. You can see very quickly how $100,000 over the course of many, many years gets real high. That's that's an extreme circumstance, but that's why we're saying policy limits have to be you know high if, if you can, right? Subject to what you're paying for premiums, et cetera. Do you see any mistakes that people make on insurance policies that you think they should correct, or is pretty cut and dry? Get your two million or three, or, you know, whatever you're going to get, and you're good. It's it's pretty cut and dried. I mean, I I would say that. Uh, where where it's a declared rental and it's you know it's clear that it's a rental and there are tenants you want to make sure that you've made that clear you know in in your insurance policy as well right where we used to know people who would try to save some money by getting regular single family home like i'm living in it insurance yeah, instead of yeah. declaring it as a rental property yeah, that's a problem to save like 15 dollars a month yeah, a or something for yeah, sure. yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. So I would say student rentals too. Declare it as a student rental and get proper student rental insurance and not regular rental property well, insurance. On a student rental, I would for sure. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. For sure. Okay, so that kind of stuff. Yeah. What about what's the best practice for when you're asking um I keep thinking about buying. I guess the investor in me is always trying to acquire properties. But so you're buying a property, you want the seller to do some work for you know prior to closing. What's the best practice for putting that in the agreement? Like, you know, is it to have penalties in there if the work's not done? Is it to follow up? You know, how do you, how can you go check to see if the work's done? That that sort of thing. Because sometimes you get into a situation where it's like, hey, the seller's going to repair the roof and they don't, or yeah. they put like yeah. a little, some crazy glue on it and yeah. they say it's repaired, but it's not. Yeah. Well, you know, um, again, depending on what type of market it is, is it a seller's market? Is it a buyer's market? It's, do sellers feel strongly enough that they can tell you to go pound it? You know, we're not doing that. But all things being equal, uh, if the if you want the seller to repair certain, let's call them deficiencies or issues of the property, I think that you have to, you know, enumerate them very clearly in the Schedule A that's affixed to the agreement, you know, indicate exactly what has to be fixed. 
I think you have to indicate, you know, that there'll be you know, X number of inspections, at least at least one, I would say two or three maybe. Um, and, you know, you'd have to indicate that, you know, that everything has to be completed to your, the buyer's satisfaction. Um, um, and you have to give yourself enough time to review that and see that the work's done. I mean, you're taking on quite a bit if you're getting the seller to do all those things, but assuming that you want to do that, the property's worth it, you do do it. Uh, and then let's just say you come to closing and the seller hasn't done that. You can do one of a number of things. You can extend and uh, require that the seller do it before you close. Uh, or, you know, uh, the lawyers can negotiate a holdback where we say, you know, we're going to hold back X number of dollars on, on the sale, in our case, the purchase rather, um, f- for us to complete it now. And, you know, subject to verification of those invoices, then that's what the holdback will be. So instead, but, so, you know, that, that creates back and forth or, or, right. So if I, I, let's say the roof is, we agree that it's going to be worth four or 5,000 bucks to repair it. If I put that in the agreement that, hey, you guys agree to do this, and if you don't, the holdback's gonna be 5,000 bucks. Does that make it easier and more clean when we're doing, like at the end of the day, if, if the work's not done on closing? Like, can you just for revert sure. back to the agreement and say? For, for sure, if you know in advance that that's what it's gonna cost and you've agreed in advance that's what it's going to cost, then for sure that's easier. Okay, yeah. and then you Nick, just- Nick, you're hold. thinking to agree to the dollar amount right up front. Well, totally, yeah, because normally when, when those types of things happen, when they're not, yeah, you're when just they're saying, doing it, do at it the end of our... the day for closing, at that point, everyone's gonna be like not happy about it. But at the, at the early on, if you're giving the seller what they want, when you're giving them the price they want, they're thinking they're going to do the work anyway. Yeah, so agree. they're happy to agree to it. They're like, yeah, no problem. If you can you know get the mean? agreement up front, for sure. Normally it's easy. Outside of like extreme markets, like, you sure. know, you know, which like extreme seller markets, normally we haven't seen too much trouble dealing with that stuff. If they agree that they're going to repair it anyways, then we can put that number in there. So we've, we've tried to do, we didn't in the, in the past, but we we found that it can it can just clarify the closing process afterwards. I I've just just to that point I've received a deal in just today from one of your people um, that that they did ne- they did negotiate that in advance, but they negotiated it as just a reduction on the purchase price. Okay, so so they, so they knew what the price would be, or they figured out or agreed to what the price would be, and they just dropped the price by X number of dollars, and that you know that's a clean deal. But they've come to the agreement in advance, you know. Yeah, got it. Makes it nice and simple. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what is, oh, some of the crazy stuff? Have you seen rec- any recent crazy stuff you've been involved with? Anything that you can share, uh, or no? All, is it better I not see to uh, all kinds of crazy stuff, th- th- but not really in the real estate market? You know, pretty like, simple. Yeah, the real estate market's pretty cut and dried. You know, you know what? Uh, we have uh, we have friends of ours who are visiting our place in Croatia today. They arrived, and uh, it's Mark. I don't know if you know Mark on our team. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Mark, uh, I don't know why, I feel like not saying his last name, maybe to protect him or something. Anyway, (laughs) Mark is traveling the world uh, for a year with his family. You told me that, Yeah, he stopped in Croatia. He arrived there today. Uh, He FaceTimed me, and just seeing him in Croatia with some people we know over there is so super. Doing shots. Doing shots. He's like, Tom, who's this guy? So there's a shirtless guy that kind of maintains the property. That's amazing. And he's feeding him shots. He's like, I've been here for five minutes. I'm three shots in. That's amazing. and uh, so it's just super cool. We told him where to go and uh, stuff. But uh, the reason I'm bringing it up is because that property took us four years to kind of close legally over there. And just about six months ago, so this this would be about eight years, did the title finally go through properly. Yeah. So like, I don't even know if it's eight years been to close. So and get this, we gave them all the money 
cash. Like I mean, like in check. Uh, part of no, it. No cash. Big, big in cash. Yeah, and like a long goes back. Yeah, from one bank to the other. So we get all the money in cash. Uh, years before we even had any claim to it. Like yeah, years. Nick and I are ridiculous. We paid for the whole thing without having any legal claim on it and then realized after we gave them the, all the Cat cash. Yeah, picking uh, a poke. Yeah, that we didn't legally like own the thing. Yeah, it was very funny. Uh, We're very sophisticated people when buying properties. Yeah, but uh, so just how smooth it is to do real estate in Canada. It's ridiculous. It really is. When people kind of talk to us and they're like, oh my God, real estate's so complicated and this is, I'm like, you have no idea. You could put an offer, you could close really in about two weeks. You, you'll stress the mortgage guys out, but you could close a property here in about you, two you weeks totally if you have your can. act together. You totally can. And we and we get deals like that all the time. We have we get them in like just, you know, like a week. Now, that's not ideal when someone comes in and says, you know, my property's closing in four days. Can you close it? Um, it's, you know, so I was watching the other day. I don't know why I was watching. Maybe my wife was watching it. We were watching sure, Master, sure, Master yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, Chris, whatever you want to tell yeah. yourself, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, but seriously, this is a good point. So uh, Master Chef Canada, right? So uh, the premise is, you know, you're going to make a souffle. And, you know, if you had all the time in the world, you could make the souffle. But you don't have all the time in the world. You've got like 30 seconds to make a souffle, right? And so you get some competent person or presumably competent person that could, with all the time in the world, make a souffle. But if you give them 30 seconds, they totally screw it up. And, you know, the same sort of idea with, you know, a real estate transaction. If you give me four days, there's a possibility that, you know, we might get a couple of names wrong on the documents, right? As my ladies are typing at a thousand miles an hour. So, but they, it can get done and everything's on the electronic system now. It's so clean now. If it's a land titles, electronically pinned property, pretty hard to screw it up. Yeah, we're, we're blessed. When, uh, yeah, I say, I say even, I mean, I'm not entirely familiar with the U.S. process but from what I know about it from the people that we know in the U.S. I when like, things go into escrow versus once we have a firm deal in place, mm -hmm. the chances of ours closing, it seems like much more solid than when things go into escrow in the U.S. It's still... There's still a lot. There's still some questions to be answered, and the possibility of it falling apart seems far greater than with something. Yeah, well, a lot of brokerages here. we know when it goes into escrow, they have like a legal person in the brokerage that is managing the escrow process. It's yeah. a different closing process. Yeah, I don't, I don't completely understand it, but I know it's more complicated than ours. By yeah, like we're yeah. we're fortunate. If you, uh, you know, it's just another factor that Canada's I, the best. I, well, I just feel like if you can't successfully invest here, it's a pretty simple process. You're just laying on lay you're putting on layers of complication if you go elsewhere because there's still totally. plenty of opportunity here and it's, it's very like you said pretty clean cut and easy easy to go and, about and the level of expertise um not speaking about the three people in this room but <laughs> the level of expertise among professionals in in this area is high right because there's just a high saturation of it you know almost all the properties are electronically pinned You've got lawyers everywhere, accountants everywhere, you know, you know, real estate brokerage everywhere. You know, not all with competent people, but a lot of competent people, you know, throughout southwestern Ontario. So it, it's very rare that you see deals go bad um, as a result of some, you know, mistake in the process. Where deals go bad is where you know, one party doesn't hold up their end of the bargain in some way. Sure. And that's where we get yeah, into yeah. litigation. Because right? here, yeah. over, I've noticed over in Croatia, like land title in Canada is so clean because everything's nice and do for the most part, uh, I don't know, unless it's some rural area or something, is so cleanly documented. In Croatia, they were trying to search up land title, like who owned the land on different areas. 
and I was at a lawyer's office, Nick, over there, and they were looking through like old yeah. documents yeah. and yeah. trying to find yeah. out like the family history. Yeah, like the registry and, system here. Yeah, the registry system, yeah. and it was it passed to another family member, and because there's been multiple wars over there, they were trying to figure out, okay, well, during the war, all ownership was decreed by the government to like pass ownership to these local people, but then after the war, it kind of reverted back, and the people who owned the land from before the war had ownership rights on the land again. So they were coming to claim the land and people were trying to hide who owned that land. Um, here, we're very kind of blessed. It's you know, it, it's so it's so cut and dry. When are you going to Greece next? I have no idea. When's the last time you've been? Um, so I was there in 2011 when my, dad, so when now, my dad died. Yeah. Oh, geez, really? Yeah. Oh, and okay. that was the last time? That was the last time, yeah. Uh, still family over there or? Most of my family's in Greece. Yeah. yeah, I was born here though, so I don't, you know, I don't have a real connection with the people in Greece. It's, yeah, the you know. reason I just seem to, lo I like, I love Greek food, so I guess maybe just selfishly. And yeah. uh, we traveled to Croatia, so we're blessed. It's a beautiful place, but everyone tells us how nice the Greek islands are. They're beautiful. So now we have to go to make sure the Croatian islands are actually better than the Greek <laughs> islands, like our father has told us since we were born. Of course. So that's how we. You know what shocked me is how much feta cheese they'll give you on a, on a Greek salad here. They sprinkle on a little piece of feta when when we that's were. Right. Right. We forgot, were there. You were, you were there. On, we was were that a crew? I forget. Was no, we went. We went. We just went to Greece for I think eight or nine days. And that one island Greece you Egypt, said was Greece magical. Egypt. Which island was it? Uh, Santorini, Santorini, which is a pretty popular one. We yep. went to a few. Yeah. Um, the blown up volcano. Yeah. 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 But they give you this these just chunk of feta that I was like, holy cow! And I remember one waiter, young guy. He's like, oh, you want a salad with? We were ordering dinner. I'm like, yeah, I guess. He goes, what guy's salad? Greek? And I'm like, I guess. I go, I just feel like I've had so much Greek salad. He's like. What does it matter? I have one every day. My mom gives me a Greek salad. That's what you get. And I'm like, okay, I guess I want a Greek salad. Like, it makes me feel stupid for you know questioning it. So yeah, that was a great trip, man. It is a beautiful place. I love it. Yeah, there. we're just fans of Europe. This summer we're going off to the Amalfi Coast. Oh, nice. And then over to Croatia. Yeah, nice. feel kind of blessed. Yeah. But uh, Chris, you got to get yourself over there, I should. man. You're right it's about a that, nice. Man. It's a nice way of life for sure. So anyone listening to this who's thinking about some legal stuff, any words of advice for anyone listening to this in the legal world? That's pretty standard stuff, I think, right? It's, it's pretty standard be, stuff. Be I'm, honest. Do what you say you're going to do. I'll give one when it comes to law. So I'll interject for a second because I've seen investors do this when yeah. it comes to lawyers. They'll like shop around trying to get yeah. a cheap lawyer oh. or they'll, they'll misuse the lawyer's time. They'll just be like, oh, I just got a question for you. And they'll try to like... You know, everything, they, they kind of cut corners when it comes to the legal stuff, either looking for free advice or something. And I'm, I mean, you know, we've just seen years and years doing this. That's a big mistake. Like find a good professional and, and develop pay a good, pay, pay them and develop a good longstanding relationship with them because that's going to go further. At least in our opinion, that's going to go much further than trying to hop from one guy to the next guy because he's going to do your closing for a hundred bucks less or something like that. Yeah. I mean, you know? it's, it's, that's self-serving for me to say, but I think. I no, think but, that's totally but true. But we can though, step in and know. say this because really we believe the power, like real estate's a great vehicle to accomplish some financial goals, no doubt. But with it comes a lot of potential problems. Sure. But the problems really decrease in stress level dramatically when you have the right network of people, when you have good real estate people around you, when you true. have good real estate lawyers, when you have different people who can represent you at the tenant board, when you have good mortgage brokers. These people are your team.
team and are of more value to you in life, in my opinion, than the property itself. So you will want to find good professionals and pay them what they're worth. And I don't really care if this is self-serving because I would want my younger self to hear these words yeah. because there is that time when you're young, you're like, well, I'm going to save 40 bucks here. I'm going to save a hundred bucks here. But really you want to spend the money with the people who are going to be long-term parts of your team. And it's tough to know that. You know, it's tough to know that like, oh, I might reach out to a Chris or someone else, an accountant, and I think they're going to be part of oh, my yeah. team. It's tough to know that when you're younger. I but you told should you. know behind the scenes when you engage with professionals and you use them year over year and you pay your bills on time, they might not tell you, but people who are these professionals notice you. There's no doubt about they it. They notice who are no the good clients. I, I, and they will no go to- no doubt about it. I, 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 I can tell you, I mean, I'm not going to tell you, but I, I can track in my mind right now, even without a list. What clients, you know, I see regularly that I appreciate that, you know. Totally. Um, and whose calls you might, listen, I'm not trying to say you'll cherry pick any calls, but it, this happens to Nick and I all the time. No when we it. know there is a good investor who's worked with us for like 10 years. No doubt about And they're just a good person. When they have a problem, you better believe we're tripping over ourselves to help them. It's not like we're not going to help the other people. But if our calendar is jammed, we not, might not go completely out of our way and cancel our whole day to take care of something compared to someone who we just know this person is just been an amazing person to us over the years we need to do everything possible to help them this minute yeah i think i think you have to if you're an investor if you're a client you have to sort of know you know you have to be aware of what the what the fee ranges are like you don't want to be overpaying um, you know, you have to, you're not going to pay a lawyer or an accountant twice what someone else would pay. That's just plain stupid. Uh, but so you have to have an idea of what the ranges are. But if you've got a lawyer or an accountant or, you know, a real estate guy that, that are in, you know, the acceptable range of what other people are charging, even maybe a little bit more than what other people are charging, but you're getting that, you know, let's say that satisfaction from them from a global perspective long term, that's way, way better, I, I personally believe. Uh, and, and, and I, I just think that's better, uh, as a professional, I respect obviously the people that give me good work and that I have a good relationship with. And if they call me out or if they question me, then, you know, I, I can have a conversation with them and, and be frank and honest with them. You know, um, other clients are maybe more difficult. Um, you try to service everyone as best as you can, but human nature is what it is. And you're going to, as you say, not cherry pick, but you're going to sort of almost fall over yourself for the people that are consistent, you know, good clients over the long haul. Yeah. And it's just building your network. You got to build it. Look, if you're going to be in any industry, whether if you're going to be an entrepreneur or business owner, right? So whether it's lawyer, real estate, anything else, or an investor, I, I have always looked at as investors, you're just an entrepreneur. I mean, totally. it's like a small business. You got to build your network. How valuable is it? Like, like other, the, the guys that you, other lawyers or the other paralegals and things that you need to know in your industry, how valuable it is it? The bigger the network, there's so much value there. For it's sure. probably the one thing that's not spoken about um, as often as it should be because there's no, for so many people that invest, there's no like direct ROI on it. They can't kind of put this tangible number to investing in their network. And it's, it's by far over time, you realize it's like the most valuable thing. You can remove everything else you have. And if you have a good, solid network that you've treated well, you can get a whole hell of a lot of it back and people, very quickly. And people misunderstand how, how quickly the, a bad reputation spreads. So if you treat a contractor poorly, that contractor probably knows a couple lawyers. They tell them about you. Those people also probably know a few accountants. Before before long, your name is kind of like marked as someone to be careful to deal with throughout an entire community 
Like the power of maintaining a good name and a good professional relationship and just doing the right thing at all times is extremely valuable in life. Um, anyway, we're getting off on a bit of a rant here. Just do the right thing. <laughs> it's the, the right it, thing. No, but it just, it makes your life, you sleep well at night. You yeah. know, you can be peaceful, have a happy family, <laughs> live. Um, anyway. So, Chris, as we begin to wrap up here, if anyone wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way? Website, email? Um, I would say uh, email or phone call are just fine. So uh, my email is chris at capclaw.ca. Uh, my office number is 905-388-0130. And I know you think I'm crazy, but I've always lived by it. My cell phone, 905-520-1081. That's usually the most direct way to get it. And the website, www.capclaw.ca. Awesome. Chris, thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. Uh, you know what? We're going to want to chat with you about like wills and like some legal estate planning stuff. Anyway, we'll bring you back on and chat thanks about your stuff. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, good times. At some point, uh, I was just saying I need to get a new suit. I currently oh, don't gee, have a single suit. Again. It's got to be a th- it's gotta be well, 18 no, piece. suits that look good. Something we didn't mention about Chris, just so you know, is uh, oh, no, no, we're going to save that for next time. <laughs> we'll leave that as a cliffhanger. Chris, thank you. <laughs> yeah, take care. Hey, it's Tom Kradzis. Hopefully you enjoyed that chat with Chris Agaropoulos. Great guy. Um, And if you're listening to this and you want to come out to one of our um, events or you want to learn a little bit more about real estate investing, the best place to go to come out to the real estate investing class in our office is CanadianRealEstateTraining.com. So if you go to CanadianRealEstateTraining.com, you can grab a seat. That's a class that Nick and I personally deliver. We're both here for those classes. We stick around and answer questions. So if you think real estate investing is something that you want to get into, but you haven't checked it out yet, you can come out to one of our classes. That's a free class where we just give some education about what we've been through the years, what some of the strategies that we're using today with investors. Um, And you can grab yourself a seat at CanadianRealEstateTraining.com. Until next time, your life, your terms.